Right, this is one of these sermons on Wednesday I decided decided I had to, I had to do it, but I didn't really want to. You'll, you'll see it during the first half of it. This is one that um, it's an easy text to skip over because as we're going through this, this isn't one of those la la la, feel good, so awesome sermons. This is a tough one. But before we get into it, let, let's make a list. If you were going to make a list of the most hated people throughout human history, recorded human history, who would be on that list? Hitler. Hitler. I got Hitler on the top of my, well, close to the top. What's that? Okay. Stalin. How about Osama bin Laden? Put him on the list. Remember Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City? He'll make the list somewhere, right? We could add some, some people. Um, you know who tops the list time and time again? Judas. Judas? I, I'd put Judas up there. Jesus tops the list every single time of the most hated person in human history. doesn't seem like it, but we're going to look at a text today where, where he makes the point of, of that. And as we do, we're going to look at, um, look at a difficult promise. The Bible's full of promises. It's full of some great promises. And in fact, it's full of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of great promises. Uh, Joshua 1.9, the, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God promises in, in Romans that nothing can separate us from his love. We're told that he'll be our um, instructor, teacher, and counselor in the Psalms. John 15, we're told that if we abide in him, we'll bear much fruit. Uh, we're told in Isaiah to fear not, for he's with us, that he'll strengthen us and protect us, that he'll uphold us in his righteous hand. And on and on and on these promises go. But then you stumble across some bad promises. At least they look bad on premise. And one of those is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what the promise is, why Jesus made it to us, and how we're to live in light of it. We're going to look at John chapter 15, verse 18 through 64. And we're going to look at the cost of abiding and loving. Remember two weeks ago we looked at what it means to abide. Last week we looked at what it means to love. And today we're going to see one of the costs of abiding and loving. And it's important that we consider the costs of being a Christian. In Luke, in Luke, in Revelation 3, verse 16, Jesus is um, speaking through John to the church in Laodicea, and he comments on the, the lukewarm faith of the church there. What he's saying is it's disgusting to him. It, it, it's water he would want to spit out if it was water, because they're neither hot nor cold from They're indifferent. They're apathetic. They, they compartmentalize, and that's unacceptable. There's, there's cost to following Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this same verse they all record. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. These aren't the things you put on the back of your car, you know, to, to get people to be fired up to be a Christian. I, I haven't seen a good marketing campaign that's been able to use the lukewarm faith or the uh, take up your cross daily and follow me. Uh, but I'm thinking maybe we'll go with one that starts here. I, I think we should get mailers, send them out. And they read, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. That will drive them in, won't it? But if we understand what's going on here, I think we'll be amazed that it actually would drive people in. Listen, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Stop there a second. Jesus is not saying it wasn't until he came that people were guilty of sin. He's dealing with a particular sin of rejecting him. I don't want you to be confused as we're reading through that. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. John didn't record these words with a 21st century American audience in mind, though these words were recorded for us. John recorded these words during a time of immense physical persecution on the church. Twelve disciples. Judas went bad. we got eleven true ones left, right? You ever wonder what happened to them? They all planted churches. Their churches grew tremendously. They broke off to sister churches. They wrote a lot of books, and it went well for them. They died in their late 90s, and, and it was just a wonderful life, right? No. I was uh, doing a little research this week on what happened to the to the original, to the original, to the apostles. Philip. You know how it went down for Philip? Philip was whipped, imprisoned, and crucified. The world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you, John writes. Matthew. Remember the tax collector? He's killed with an axe and a sword. James, Jesus' brother. 94 years of age, he was beaten, stoned, and then bludgeoned to death. This isn't going so well, is it? Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified. Simon, crucified. Jude, crucified. Peter, crucified, but upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. Bartholomew, beaten, crucified, and then beheaded. Thomas, killed with a spear. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. That leaves one left. The author of this gospel, John, the only apostle not to be a martyr for his faith. But don't think that John hung out on Patmos, sipping iced tea on the beach. John was boiled alive in oil. He miraculously survived, and then he was sent to Patmos. The human hand through which these words were penned knew what it meant to be hated by the world. Now, think of the people who John saw come to faith, who died for their faith. Think of the churches he interacted with and went through the persecution of people like Nero. John knew what he was talking about when he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But things are better today, right? In our times, Christians are not persecuted for their faith. In the world we live in, they don't face this type of horrific atrocities like they did back then, right? Do you know in the last 100 years, more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last 100 years than in the previous 1900 years of church history? Think of a country like Sudan, Rwanda, China, and the atrocities of these apostles still happen today. Now, we live in a fortunate... See, I told you it's going to start out depressing. We live in a fortunate time. 
We live in a society where we are not physically persecuted for our faith. But don't be confused with that lack of physical persecution by thinking that the world doesn't truly hate us. It's a difficult thing because how often do you hear that America is a Christian nation? I love our country. I think it's the best country on the planet Earth. I think, I think we have more blessings than, than we can shake a stick at. I, I am proud to be an American. I consider myself patriotic, but my primary allegiance is to God, not to this country. I think, though, that, that we're often numb to the fact that this isn't a Christian nation, that, that Jesus isn't loved in America and hated in the rest of the world. We, we live in a time, and if you're a student of history, you'll see, you'll see similarities. For example, I was just reading a book on, um, on Germany leading up to World War II, the times between World War I and World War II, and, and seeing what happened with the church there and how the church watered down and the government uh, controlled the pastors and the population had no idea what scripture said and little by little persecution came into the German church in massive ways through a, a man named Hitler in the Third Reich. So we need to be aware, we need to be students of history, we need to be thankful for the freedom we have in our country to live out our faith and, and thankful that we don't face physical persecution, but we have to stop and think, are Jesus' words true even to us? Will, does the world really hate us? Like John records here. So Let's unpack this. I will promise you, when we finish up today, this will be an uplifting sermon. This will be a promise we can rejoice in. But hang with me, will you? You can see why I would like to skip this one, but it's important. God put it in his word. I can't skip that biggest section of text. What's the promise? What does Jesus mean by the world? The world will hate you. Any idea? Society. Society people. I like uh, Chuck Swindoll had a definition of it as the fallen world system which separate, which acts according to Satan's values and is subject to the curse of sin, a.k.a. people who reject Christ. Now, realistically, you and I, well, let's lead up to that. Jesus is not telling us that the world is an evil entity, not that, not that the physical world or nature or, or material things are evil and we're to flee from them. He's saying that people who don't believe in Christ will hate us as Christians. That's kind of hard to do because, do you, let's be honest here, who knows a non-Christian person? Do you feel like every non-Christian person you know hates you? No, right? I mean, we all have non-Christian, well, I don't know about all of us, I'm assuming here. We have non-Christian family and friends and, you know, the friends, friends, relatives, associates, neighbors. And I don't always feel like they hate me. Like, in fact, if I'm honest with you, I don't feel like I'm hated very much by many people. Now, I can make people hate me. I, I've done that over the years. I, I have a personality which, if left unchecked, can be highly offensive to other people. Uh, when I first came to faith, I was, I was great at, at really offending people, making them hate me. You know, because it showed my, my, true, my true Christianity at play. Like, when I would say to someone... Do you believe in Jesus? No. Oh, what are you, stupid? Why not? You know, and then they hate me, and I'm like, yeah, thank you, God, they hate me. It means that you love me. I'm just so awesome. And No, it, it, that, that's not what this is talking about. Imagine if you were an ambassador, an American ambassador, and you were in Japan during World War II, and you're walking down the streets. How do you think the Japanese people would look at you? Oh, hey, how are you doing? I don't think you'd want to walk down the street, would you? Because there's a war going on. Yeah, there's some bad stuff happening. You are not a friend to the Japanese people if you represent the American 
government. You know what we are as Christians now? Ambassadors to Christ who walk on the streets of a fallen world. Let me ask this question. Why don't we feel hated? I mean, honestly, do you ever, do you ever wake up in the morning and I think, all right, let's go back to the time when John wrote. It's not like John woke up and he had this compartmentalized faith. And he's like, oh, man, I'm going to go out today and tell somebody about Jesus and do some of this loving and abiding and get back here to my house and relax. And I don't know what's on. on. What did they do for entertainment? Looked at stone tablets, right? I don't know what's going to be on the stone tablet. <laughs> the Flintstones? I don't know. John woke up and he walked out into a world that he knew hated him. But they hated him not because of who he was, but because of who called him friend. Why do you think that we don't... It's a question. It's not a loaded question. Why do you think that as Americans who are Christians living in this society, we don't feel hated? I think for me that's part of it. You know, Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Me, I'll be honest with you. Because I'm, I'm, you know, I know you all think I'm perfect, right? Sometimes we, we were out at um, Longwood Gardens this week. And we were in, they have a, a little lily pad garden in the middle of the conservatory. And we were out there and this, this lady, really nice lady, was taking my kids for a tour of the, the stuff and how it worked. And she was asking these questions. And, and I'm sitting there and these were clear things. I knew I should have said something, but I could come with every excuse in the book not to say something. She says, wow, I wonder... I wonder how these flowers came to be like they are. I'll have to Google that. Now I'm sitting there, pansy pastor, going, uh, because, you know, I'm supposed to say, because God made them that way. Right? This is no bold proclamation of my faith. This is me like, well, that's how God made them. Who knows what God does with that, right? But what do I do? Well, I'm going to give my children the opportunity to be bold for their faith and say something on their own. I won't step on their toes. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh boy. Then we're going on, and we're talking about damselflies and dragonflies and how they got to be different, and we're dabbling into evolution. So what does your bold pastor do? Well, you know, I'll let the kids just listen. I'm a wuss. I am a wuss at times. I'm having a conversation with someone this week about our free car wash. Why are you doing a free, and I did a little better on this, but don't think I did fantastic. Why are you doing a free car wash? Isn't that a waste of time and money? I said, in my mind, uh, 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 because I don't want to make this person think I'm crazy. Anybody here concerned with people thinking you're crazy so you don't fit in because it might result in them hating you? Let me raise my hand. Keep yours down. I've gotten better at it. But in my mind, I have this, this battle between flesh and sin, in my heart, I guess, is where I'm, well, I'm both. Where I want to conform to this world because it's hard to stick out. It's lonely to stick out. And people look at you funny and then they start to hate you. Told you last week, I'd tell you about my neighbor. I was outside. I had my, remember I had my earbuds in listening to my book on tape, which was the, the sign of coolness when you listen to audiobooks instead of music. Right? Yeah, everybody got an audiobook this week? <laughs> And I saw him, and I, I turned it off, and I started talking to him, and through our conversation, inevitably, he says to me, well, what do you do for a living? And, and I've handled that question in different ways. It's, you know, it's, it's easy to have a conversation about God when you say you're a pastor, but it also, it also messes up many conversations. I've gone with some strange answers to that. But I say, well, I'm a, vocationally, I'm a pastor. 
And then his, his expression, I mean, if I could have recorded this, it would have been great to play. He's like happy as could be. I'm a pastor. Oh, like that. He said, well, well, and it starts going like that. Well, 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 what do you believe? Do you believe that all people should have the right to believe whatever they want to believe? That's what I believe. Is that what you think? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think that everyone should have the right to believe whatever they want. That's how God made us. My goal isn't to force anyone to believe what I I believe. That's a decision everyone needs to make on their own. Well, good, good, good. I like that. I agree with that. Well, what about with your kids? What do you do with your kids? Well, we present our kids with, with what we believe, and we let them make a decision on their own of what they want to do with the truth. All right, that's okay. I can deal with that. So, well, tell me about you. Well, well, I was, I, was raised, I was raised Roman Catholic, you know, but nominally, and I went to Catholic schooling and went off to college, Catholic college, and we go sometimes. We've got to get back into it now when the baby's getting older. We want, that's important to us, but right now we're just very busy. And we talked a couple more minutes, and he said, all right, well, I, I got to go, and you have a good night. <laughs> and I realized what happened there. We had, we had a confrontation of worldviews. What he wanted to know, are you going to challenge what I believe? Because if you are, I want nothing to do with you. And in the past, I would have said, you idiot, you're wrong, and let me show you why. That doesn't work so well most of the time. We're called to be bold, not idiotic. Bold is, is figuring out how to love a world. Now, if I said to this guy, if he's like, what do, I, what do you believe? Some people will go with the bold, confrontational approach. Well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to die for the sins of the world. And it is only through him that we could have eternal life and forgiveness for sins. True. But I didn't discern that that man was ready to hear that in those ways yet. So what I'm going to try to do, what I'm, praying, what, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm praying for this guy and his wife that God would give us opportunities to love them. Because I can't make him believe, but God might use me in the process. But if I'm going to really love this guy as I abide in Christ, he's going to think I'm crazy, and eventually he's either going to hate me or he's going to love me. And we're not going to be able to play the middle ground there, are we? Years ago, I, I probably shared this story with you. As I get older, I'll share these stories more and more often. I was on Deer Path Road in Chicago, driving from our house to the seminary. And Alistair Begg came on the radio. You know who Alistair Begg is? He's a Scottish uh, guy who's a pastor in Cleveland. I if I could get his voice in my throat, y'all would love church. He had, I love his accent. And he was saying, I can't not do his accent, but he was saying, if you do not share your faith, you almost certainly do not have a faith to share. And I was hot under the collar, because... I definitely had a faith. I had tried to share it. It didn't go real well. So what happened was, after, after offending people, I went to the other extreme and decided I was just going to shut my mouth. They didn't want to hear it. I wasn't going to tell them, and I kept my mouth shut. And who is this Alistair Bay cat to tell me that if I'm not sharing my faith, I don't have a faith to share? I mean, I, you ever get mad at a radio? I was mad at this radio. And I'm like, turned it off, I'm ranting and raving to myself about who knows what, and for a good year and a half, this really just stuck with me, it just really bothered me, and I would, do you know what I heard on the radio today, this guy said, if you're not sharing your faith, you know, who does he think he is, well, it took a long, long time, but I understand what he was talking about, if I truly and fully understand who Jesus is, who I am, and what Jesus did for me, I can't keep my mouth shut, now, I would change his wording, if you don't share your faith, perhaps he would be better suited to say, you have a rather immature faith. Because you could be a Christian and not share your faith. 
But as you mature in your faith, you will be unable to help share your faith. And as you share your faith, do you know what's going to happen? Jesus promises you the world will hate you. Now, I don't like that, though. I don't like that very much, do you? Wouldn't it be nice, can't we all just get along? Wouldn't it be nice if, if we could be Christians and the world could be non-Christians and they could just accept us for who we are and we could accept them for who they are and we could just kind of work our way through life and be done with it? Wouldn't that be nice? Isn't God, doesn't he say that y'all shouldn't disagree over stuff and that we should all get along and love one another? Have I distorted biblical text and taken it out of context? But Jesus tells us, that if we're truly abiding in Him, if we're truly loving Him, and I'm telling you, if you're not being a wuss and actually living out a loving life for other people, you're going to find people start to hate you. I don't like it. It can mess up your self-esteem. Because it feels good when people say, oh, you know, like, Matt's going to hear this week. Matt, thank you so much for telling me about Jesus. My life is so much better now. You, you know, I, I just, I can't thank you enough for what God's done through you, and, and, and I, I, we're just friends forever now. Thank you so much. Wouldn't that be nice? You get that like twice a week, every week. People, then he calls me, man, I forgot to ask, what time does church meet? Because I want to go to church with you. And it just, you know, we're like, we come in and we're like, oh man, this is great. What happens though is usually the opposite. We try to engage a person in a conversation about Christ and they want nothing to do with it. We try to love people through acts of, of love, like we talked about last week, where we get nothing on our ends and they just don't seem to care or notice. And it gets to be discouraging and stuff. So, why? Why does Jesus give us his promise? What's going on here and how are we supposed to respond to it? You and I need to, need to really, we'll, we'll have a discussion here. What's the real world? When I was in, in college and graduate school, you'll hear about this now, Morgan, right? Oh, well, wait till you get out into the real world. Teachers. Oh, it must be nice to be a teacher, but in the real world. What's the real world? You ever stop and think about that? Anyone doesn't have a contract. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. The real world is corporate America, right? It's where you work for a paycheck and you pay your bills and you live day to day and, and, and you work for the man. The man doesn't function in the real world, but everybody who works for the man, I'd like to meet the man. Actually, I know the man. I'll introduce you to him sometime. The real world is not that. The real world, according to Scripture, and, and I, I'm pretty confident the Bible knows what it's talking about. You know what the real world is? It's this present darkness. You ever hear that expression? It's a battleground. It's a war between the forces of good and evil. The prince of this world, the devil, he tries to manipulate and destroy and distort through lies versus God and his forces. And we live in a time between Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his second coming. We live in a time where the real world is comprised of a whole bunch of stuff we can't see, where the battle for people's eternal destination takes place. This is the real world. Now, I don't hear many people talking about the real world like this. See, when I was in grad school... Someone said, wait till you get in the real world. I'm living in the real world. You're a teacher with a contract. You're living in the real world. You're, you're working day to day. You're in the real world too. Academia, corporates, unemployed. It's all the real world. It's this present darkness. It is a time between Christ's first coming and second coming. And we live in the time of a war. And the more we realize this and start to ask ourselves, so why are we here? So you come to faith. Why doesn't God just come? Blam! You're in heaven. You never have to worry about getting sick, hurt, nothing bad happened. You just say, I believe in Jesus. Woo! It's good now. Why doesn't he do that? 
We're going to unpack that a lot more next week, but for now, suffice to say, one of the reasons he doesn't do that is because he leaves us in this world to love people as we abide in him to be a light in the darkness. But we need to realize that we're living in the real world, because what happens is Romans 12.2 gets messed up, and we start to think that this is it. I read a great quote this week that I wrote down. You know who A.W. Tozer is? You ever hear that name? He says, men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We're not here to fight, we're here to frolic. We're not on a foreign land, we're at home. We're not getting ready to live, we're already living. How often does that speak to how you view this world? To me, it speaks to it quite often. I'm comfortable here. I, I, I like a lot about it here. I, I, I could stay longer. You know, I say 92 is my ideal age. I could push 120 if I feel physically good. I can't, I can't honestly say to you that I wake up every day and I'm praying what, what John is praying in Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm praying come sometime when, when it's better for me, but, but not today. I got plans. I got things I want to do and places I want to go. And, and I, want, I want to be a part of things that are happening before I go to heaven. But see, when we understand why we're here and where we're going, it starts to change things. I asked you last week what would happen if you knew Jesus was coming back at 5 o'clock today. You're probably not going to stop by Home Depot on your way home to work on a home improvement project, right? <laughs> if he's coming next month, maybe you could fix up something in the house, but you know you're not going to be here very long. Well, when's Jesus coming back? We don't know. Why hasn't he come back? Uh, we do know a little bit about that. So that people might have an opportunity to hear the truth and respond to the truth and come to faith. Think about how Jesus lived in the world. Remember John 3.16, everybody's favorite verse, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life and not perish. What's the next verse? Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now stop. Stop, I'm the one talking. We're sitting in John, in John 15 at the Last Supper, the last meal the disciples are going to have with Jesus. These guys are just, they are reeling, right? They just, they know Jesus is the Messiah. They've gone through some crazy boat rides and people coming back from the dead and some really weird teachings and people trying to kill Jesus and people loving Jesus. They had that crazy picnic with the, with the 10,000 people. Remember all that? Jesus says to them, I'm going to go away. Y'all better believe in me. You better abide. You've got to love one another. Oh, and by the way, everybody's going to hate you. Now, they're just reeling at this point, right? They're reeling. And they don't understand what's going on here. The world hated Jesus. They saw a world that hated Jesus. And what did he do? He went, he went ballistic, right? He did the lightnings and thunderbolts and started just wailing on people with a, with a, a mighty God-like right hook. No. He loved the world. Who did Jesus die on the cross for? His friends or his enemies? Enemies. What are we to do in a world that hates us? We're not to retract from the world. We're not to respond with hatred. We're not to say, well, you know what? You don't like me. I don't like you. Let's just move on. We're to love the world. Little by little, in small measure, we're to give our lives for the world. Jesus tells us here in verse 27 of this, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. During a time where good battles evil, that's the real world. Do you know what the only thing that defeats evil is? truth. You and I are, are one of the few. We're one of the few people out there who know the truth, who have been set free by the truth, and you'll see in a minute we need to proclaim the truth. Our job isn't to fix society. Our job is to be a light in this world. 
When you shine a light in darkness, there are going to be two responses. People are going to be attracted to the light and come to the light, or people are going to be repulsed by the light and try to put out the light. That's what happened with Jesus, isn't it? We need to understand how Jesus responded. We need to be aware of this promise that he makes, understanding that he knew it would happen, and he's in control of it, and keep from falling away because of it. Now, this isn't really uplifting stuff, is it? This is, this is what I want you to get the last three weeks. Abide, everybody's been abiding well, good, good abiding. Love everybody, and then know that everybody's going to hate you. Now, go and tell your friends that that's how it go down. Tell them this is what you communicate. You should believe in Jesus. Well, why? Well, because he loves you. Okay. And everybody's going to hate you. Sounds great. How do I do it? Well, come to church on Sunday at 10. Can you all do that for me? They'll be coming in droves, right? Understand this. You and I were part of the world. We were part of the enemies of God. God has friends. God has enemies. There's no, there's no middle ground. Doesn't that stink? You, you can't be indifferent to God. There's no middle ground. We were enemies of God. Jesus came down from heaven took on the form of man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, so that we could be reconciled to God. When we understand the reality of that situation, which is incredibly, incredibly difficult to do, if I can be honest with you, in the world we live in now, but as we understand that reality through the transformation of our minds, it is just like incomprehensible. And we go out into the world and we start to live this out. Sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking, well, God opened our eyes to the truth. We're now Christians, and he'll open other people's eyes to the truth, and then they could be Christians, and we can hang out sometimes and avoid the world, and then we'll all go to heaven one day, right? How does somebody come to faith? How do people believe in Jesus? Do they just kind of sit around their homes on Sundays, it's raining so they can't get out, and they just get whacked in the head by God, and then they're like, oh my gosh, I'm a Christian, and they look up a church, and they come to a church, and that's how it all works? How do people come to faith? You know one of the primary ways? Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Now, if you want to play uh, word games, you're going to say, Ah, it says preach. I'm not called to preach, so I'm off to hook. Well, not so much. That word preach means proclaim, to herald, to call out. And you read the Great Commission, and guess what that means, folks? God's saying right here, How are they going to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they have never heard? It says down here in verse 17, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We're ambassadors of Christ. We're a light in the darkness. Jesus tells us, abide in him, and that as we, we know we're abiding, as we're loving people. And how do we love people? We're more concerned about them than us. We're willing to let them hate us for the sake of God. As we go out into the world, the simple fact of the matter is, from our perspective, people are going to make a choice about who they say Jesus is. And a lot of people like the darkness. They do. It's fun. It's entertaining. It, it's amusing to them. They like it. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's a part of us that, that likes the world. It's fun. You know, it's, it's fun to hang out with people. It's fun to do the things of the world. We're used to it. it it's, our, it's our human nature. It is. 
But God gave us a new nature. And little by little, as we abide in Him and we let Him transform us, things look different. And one day, my hope is that when I'm walking in the lily pad garden, probably with my grandkids when I get to this point, God willing, and the lady comes up to the kids and says, I wonder how the damselfly and the dragonfly got to be so different. I can say, in utter and complete love, Oh, I know. Do you want to hear how? She says, All right. Well, you see, way back at the beginning, God made everything. And God had this amazing creative hand and, and this, this wonderful artistry in his creation. And he made all of these amazing different creatures for us to look at. One of which was a dragonfly and one of which was a damselfly. And I don't understand why he made them different, but I know there's a perfect reason for them. And isn't it amazing that, that as we look all throughout God's creation, we could see the, the utter perfection of what he did, and we can look forward to what this must be like in a non-corrupt, sinless state in heaven, in the new heaven, in the new Jerusalem, which he promises to all people who will believe in him one day. Now, I'd like to get to that point. And when I say that, you know what most people are going to do? Huh? But you know there's going to be a person out there who starts to have a little tear trickle down the side of their eye, who, who is desperate to get out of the darkness but doesn't know how. Here's where we start to go on an upswing. What is the world going to hate us for? Not, not because of us. Don't, don't let people hate you because, because of your personality. All right? Don't let people hate you because you smell bad, you got a bad tone of voice, and you don't like them very much. Don't, don't do that. But if people hate you because you have a message for them they don't really want to hear, understand what the message really is. I, I, don't underst- I do understand, but it's really messed up. How does Jesus make the list as the top of the most hated person who ever lived? Think about what Jesus did. Jesus came down into a world that hated him, despised him, mocked him, denied him, tried to kill him. And what did he do? He did not destroy the world. He died for the world. You understand that? He came down and took a people who were completely and utterly separated from God. There was nothing they could do. They were born in a state where they just wanted to rebel against God. And through their lives, they rebelled time and time again. And they acquired and accrued a debt they could never repay. And repetitively, they spat in his face and denied him. And when he came down and took on a human form... They beat him and mocked him and persecuted and hung him on a cross. And what did he do? Did he come down off the cross and just start beating down on people? No, he died on the cross. And he died on the cross so that the people who hated him could be forgiven. And now he waits to come back so that we, his people, who have been forgiven, who are now his friends, can go out into the world and proclaim the truth of who he is and what he did for them. Now, what is offensive about God forgiving people? What is offensive about God restoring people to a position beyond what they could imagine, to making them full heirs, to calling his son friend and him father, promising them an eternal with an inheritance beyond measure, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. What's offensive about saying to someone, folks, you hated God, but he loves you. You sinned against him, but he forgave you. You can keep on sinning against him, and he will forgive you time and time again. And we share the story of the the parable of the prodigal. You know that one? And I just envision the father running out of the house, through the gates, down the dirt road, pulling up his robe so he could run, doing an act that was just utterly ridiculous for a man to do in that culture, running to his son and embracing his son because his son came home. And the world looks at that dad who runs out of the house to his son and says, we hate you. Well, folks, you and I need to understand, daddy came running to give us a hug when when we came back home. And when we understand what that means, and we understand that it's not that the world hates us, they hate him, 
But people will not come to know Him unless we go out and live a life of abiding and loving. It's as we see the one person's eyes open through us that we're, we're motivated to move on to the second. It says we trust that God's using us. We're motivated to continue on day by day. But folks, here's the thing. In cultures where people are killed for their faith, they're more bold for their faith. You know why? Because they ain't bound to this world that tight. They're looking forward to going to heaven. I believe that it is far, I know for a fact, that it's far more difficult to live a, a, a faithful and abiding life in Christ in our culture than in almost any other culture on the planet. You know why? Because we like this. And it's very difficult. We need to be careful. We need to embrace what we've been entrusted with and really enjoy it. There, there is not a call in Scripture to go out and live on the streets and sit in the mud and the rain and don't have any fun and be miserable all the time. That's not what God tells us. He tells us to let the good stuff be simply good and not turn it into God's and to let God be God. We need to enjoy the freedoms we have. We need to enjoy the stuff that we've been entrusted with, but we need to understand what the real world is. Jesus tells us that we will be hated. I'm okay with that. And here's the good news. If the world hates me because of my personality, that makes me sad. That means I got issues. But if the world hates me because in me they see Christ, that's got to make me smile somewhat, no? Because that means as they hate me, it, it means that God loves me. You understand that? If I share with them the love of Christ, and they are repulsed by that and want nothing to do with me, it will make me sad. It's appropriate to weep when someone denies Christ. But it will also make me rejoice because I know ultimately it's not me they hate, it's he who I abide in. And I know ultimately where I get to go, and I'm motivated to go out into the world. So when I look at my neighbor, and I'll wrap up here. My neighbor says, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And he's saying, all right, let's be careful there, big guy. You make sure we have some compatibility or you stay off my property line, I'll stay off your property line. That's where we're going with this. I could whoop him, though. I could whoop him big. But that's not the goal. My job is to love the guy. How do I love the guy? I say, all right, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow up a little bit. I'm going to mature a little bit. I'm not going to try to manipulate this relationship for my comfort. I'm not going to try to just get along with a guy because how do I know who else he's going to come in contact with who loves you? How do I know what your will for my life as it relates to his life is? Now, I'm not going to start putting the, you know the church signs you see when you come in? I'm going to start bashing them into the yard. We're going to go over the top. God's Grace Bible Church banner on the house. I'm going to be singing worship songs at night. We're going to be projecting this on the side of the house that they can sing, you know. They'll be like, it's working. We're going to get shot with something. That's not what we're going to do. But little by little, we're going to love these people. We're going to build a relationship with these people. And, and it's not manipulative. I'm not trying to trick them into the soft sell or the hard sell of the gospel. I'm going to simply love these people. So you know what I did this week? This is pathetic, but the reaction I got really floored me. They went away for, for the week. They went to the beach. I said, what can I do for you guys while you're away? Can I get your mail and your newspaper? I mean, how pathetically simple is that? He's like, if it's not too much trouble. I said, it's 50 feet away. I, I can take care of that. That's a tiny, insignificant little thing. I got their mail. I got their newspaper. I put it in a box, and I'll bring it back to them. I'm not going to break in and say, here's your mail, here's your newspaper, and I have a message for you from the Lord. No, I'm just going to give them their mail. I'm going to give them the newspaper as an act of love. They got a dog. When I take my dog out to exercise, I can say, hey, 
We take your dog around the block with them, run them a little bit, they have a little baby at home. That would help. All I'm doing, folks, is loving these people. And we'll see what God wants to do through it. But I'm living in light of the real world. I know that right now, this man and his wife are separated from God. They don't love Jesus very much, and there's a decent chance they may not love me very much. But, but, what happens if God so wants to use me in the process? That's great, but that's not my ultimate objective. My objective is to love them. So as you leave here today, you need to realize them. You need to be prepared to understand a promise that Jesus made. People are going to hate you if you really love them. It's good news because it means that he loves you. But understand, they're not going to hate us unless we're abiding and unless we're loving. But unless we're abiding and we're loving, we're going to have that little Romans 10 problem. Well, how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear if you and I don't proclaim? Next week, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit the helper who Jesus sends, and that's one of my favorite sections of John, and, and you'll see the economy of how this works. The Holy Spirit is going to convict people, proclaim to people, reveal to people, but where does the Holy Spirit reside and how does that work? And you stop and think, oh my goodness, you and I have a tremendous responsibility placed upon us. We're not just to live indifferently in this world and play until Jesus calls us home. Oh, enjoy life. Jesus tells us that we're supposed to be joyful people, right? Sometimes we struggle with that balance. Well, John, if everybody's hating us and all we're doing is talking about Jesus, it's kind of boring. It's really not. It's fun to love people. We want, we want to have lots of friends in the world. And that's appropriate. That's how God made it. But, but let's be friends. Let's not use people, manipulate people. Let's love people. Let's let them hate us if they want. Because you will see, I, I promise you this, there's a verse in the Bible that says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I am confident of this. I, I am undoubtedly, that's not really a word, undoubtedly confident of this. If you and I would trust Jesus enough, this coming from the guy who couldn't even speak up to the kindly grandmotherly figure at Longwood Gardens. Understand, I'm working with you on this stuff, okay? If you and I would love and trust Jesus enough to abide and love others, to speak up when he prompts us, to go out in non-manipulative ways and just love people, to be a true friend to people, let God cause them to ask the question. Let God guide the conversation. Don't back down when presented with the opportunity, but don't force it. Don't manipulate it. If we trusted Him enough to do that, I believe that we would see God work in amazing ways right before our eyes. Our job isn't to manipulate. Our job isn't to market Jesus. Our job isn't to come up with programs that work to help open people's eyes. There ain't no P90X for spiritual growth. Our job is simply to go out into the real world, into a lost world, into this present darkness while we're abiding in Christ and to love them. And Jesus says, but I want you to be prepared to understand this. I'm telling you to abide. I'm telling you to love. But as you love, you will be hated. Look at what happened to me. Jesus was hated, but he loved in return. As we're hated, we need to love in return. But also don't be discouraged. There were many people who loved Jesus. There were many people who came to faith in Christ. There were many people whose lives have been turned upside down and inside out because the truth came into this world and dwelt among us. Well, now he's up in heaven. He's going to come back one day, and he sent the helper. We'll look at that, John, John 16 next week, who resides in us. And how now do people come to know who Jesus is? Good news and bad news. You know how? Wimps like this who can't even speak to a kindly old lady at Longwood Gardens. Lord help us, and that's what we need to remember. 
I don't believe that if the Apostle John joined me on that trip to Longwood Gardens, he'd be stammering along with Pastor John. I don't think that a man who was boiled in oil... You know, I'll share this and then I'm done. This is a story I read this week. I've been trying to put it in a midweek thought and maybe now I see why I can't. Andrew, I believe it was. The Apostle. He was crucified. But it was a unique crucifi- crucifixion. It took him two days to die. He was nailed up on a cross in a public setting, and he hung there for two days. Do you know what he did for two days? Any ideas? He preached the gospel nonstop for two days. Now, no one's going to come to faith through that, are they? A guy's dying on a cross, nailed to a cross, preaching the gospel. Do you imagine people are going to come to faith? Now, there were many who walked by mocking him. Ah, shut your mouth, you fool. You believe in that stuff? Look where it got you. You can't learn, can you? I'm sure that's the majority that went by. But do you know, this is a historical event. People came to faith through his preaching on the cross as he was dying in those two days. And do you know the risk they took on when they knew what happens when you call on the name of Christ? They saw what happens. Why would they believe? That don't work out so well, does it? Because they understood what the real world was. Now, I think as I look at how we go out and try to introduce people to Christ and bring people into church and open people's eyes, I've not seen a church nail anybody to a cross and stick them on a street corner. But in that, you see the Holy Spirit working, and you can't explain it any other way. Well, how does the Holy Spirit work now? You and I aren't going to be nailed to a cross, almost certainly. I'm thankful for that, because I'm afraid I'd freak out on the cross. But Jesus does say, take up your cross and follow me daily. We need to go out in the world. We need to boldly stand up and love the world. And as opportunity comes, present the truth of Christ. Because as we do, we will glorify God. We will see God do amazing things. And I have beaten this horse to death, I think, because I need to hear it. I need to hear that we live in the present darkness, that we will be hated. But don't be discouraged, because Jesus knew. Jesus loved us. Jesus empowered us. And this ain't home. Let's pray. Father God, I just, sometimes as I prepare these sermons and preach these sermons, I just, I think, oh, these people would be much better off with someone who was far more mature in their faith. Someone who could, if John could come and preach to us, if, if Peter, James, Andrew, one, one of these guys could come and, and we could sit at their feet and just hear what it means to, to be bold in the face of hatred, to, to stand up. And, and then I'm reminded that Peter would be here too. And, Peter had that little problem with denial. And I realized that what made these men great was not their personal abilities or attributes, it was their abiding trust in you. And God, I pray that that as you take me on this journey through life, uh, maturing me in my faith, uh, I pray that that you would use me as an example, hopefully, uh, to the world around, that you'd use all of us as examples, as lights, to those around, those who believe and those who don't believe, of what it means to truly love you, to abide in you, and to love a lost world. God, I struggle with this passage this week because honestly I don't want to be hated by the world, but I need to be more focused on the fact that you love me. And I need to seek not to, uh, to please man, but to please God, and to not try to find my approval from other people, but my approval only from you, and know that in so doing, I will experience true joy, but in doing anything else, I will suffer with an inability to do that. God, I pray you would help us in this world we live in to not be 
disgusted by it, to not disdain it, to not try to remove ourselves from it, but to equip and empower and guide us as we live in this world, that we are able to be in it, not of it, as you say, that you would transform our minds so we could know and do your will, so that we could enjoy this creation you place us in, so that we could rejoice and and be entertained in the things that are proper for us to rejoice and be entertained in, so that we can truly be a happy, joyful people. But we could do it your way, God. Lord, help us remember that this isn't home. We go home at some point, maybe in two days, maybe in 52 years. We don't know, Lord God. But help us to understand the reality of that. Help it to not just be a concept in our heads, but a reality before our eyes at all moments. Help us rejoice in eternity with you that you have promised us and secured for us through Christ. Help us understand our mission as we live in this world. Help us to be a light. Help us to love. Encourage us, God, as we go through the process. Help our joy to be complete as Jesus promises us it will be as we abide. And God, I pray that you would use us mightily. While some will hate us, we know that some will love us. Some will be thankful to us for what you've done through us. And I pray we would see much of that. I pray we would hold up under the persecution we might face, that we would not deny you, but we would be prepared to stand boldly for your faith because of your love for us as we abide in you. Lord, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. We thank you for the fact that you call us friends and that through you we can do all things you call us to do. I pray this week you would present us with opportunities to go out into the world and boldly, unapologetically, love people and allow you to guide us through the process of love. Thank you, God, that you once hated us, but now you love us, that you've forgiven us through Christ, and we now get to call you Abba Father through our friend Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.